This is a Rabble Podcast Network show. New voices in your head. It's Radio Free Radio. Hello and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. My name is Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On today's program, on the occasion of municipal elections being held in major cities across the country, Alert will speak with people from Edmonton, Toronto, and Winnipeg about how the elections are unfolding. Also, we will speak with military analyst Stephen Staples about the federal government's multi-billion dollar purchase of fighter jets. First, here are the alert headlines for the week of October 21st, 2010. Canadian mining companies are by far the worst offenders in environmental, human rights, and other abuses around the world, according to a global study commissioned by an industry association but never made public. The study obtained by the Toronto Star concludes that Canadian companies have been the most significant group involved in unfortunate incidents in the developing world. Canadian companies have played a much more major role than their peers from Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States in these incidents, says the Canadian Centre for the Study of Resource Conflict, an independent non-profit think tank. The study said the leading causes of incidents involving Canadian mining companies were related to community conflict, including significant negative cultural and economic disruption to a host community, as well as significant protests and physical violence. The second most common cause of incidents involved environmental degradation, followed by unethical behavior, which the center defines as careless disregard for human rights or local laws. Hundreds of thousands of people in France are taking part in a sixth national day of action over planned pension reforms. Strikes are disrupting travel and schools. A refinery blockade is hitting fuel supplies, and protesters and police have clashed in several cities. Police broke up blockades at fuel depots in southern France, but protesters blocked a terminal at Paris's Orly Airport, and truckers were set to join the fray as momentum built for a day of street rallies on October 19th. Nationally renewed strikes and an ongoing week-long blockade of France's 12 oil refineries are expected to hit transport networks as well as private fuel supplies. Half of flights in and out of Paris's Orly Airport have been cancelled, and 30% of flights at other airports have been affected. German Chancellor Angela Merkel says her country's attempts to build a multicultural society have utterly failed. Miss Merkel has told a conference of young members of her Christian Democrats party that allowing people of different cultural backgrounds to live side by side without integrating has not worked. Anyone who does not immediately speak German, she says, is not welcome. The comments are the latest in an increasingly heated debate. Opinion polls indicate that there is much support for those who are uneasy about immigration. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says he wants to include Jews in a bill that so far requires only non-Jews to swear loyalty to the country as a Jewish state when taking Israeli citizenship. 
The law has angered Israel's Arab minority and Israel's Labour Party. It still has to be passed by the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. However, Mr. Netanyahu said on October 18th he had instructed Justice Minister Yaakov Neiman to prepare a draft bill that would also require Jews to pledge allegiance to Israel, quote, as a Jewish and democratic state. The original proposal to require mainly Israeli Arabs to swear allegiance to a Jewish state has proved deeply divisive within Israeli society, and on Saturday, thousands protested against the bill in Tel Aviv. The whistleblower group WikiLeaks has claimed that its funding has been blocked and that it is the victim of financial warfare by the U.S. government. Moneybookers, a British-registered internet payment company that collects WikiLeaks donations, emailed the organization to say it had closed down its account because it has been put on an official U.S. watch list and on an Australian government blacklist. Around 1,700 women took to the streets of the eastern town of Bukavu in the Democratic Republic of Congo to protest against sexual violence on October 17th. The march was led by Olive Lembe Kabila, the wife of President Joseph Kabila, following a week-long forum on peace and development. The demonstrators called for the end of the use of rape as a weapon of war and for perpetrators to be punished. The head of the United Nations mission in the DRC said that an estimated 15,000 people were raped in the region in 2009. And those were your alert headlines for this week. And now for Around the Left in Seven Days, Alert Radio's weekly roundup of events around the country that we wish to bring to your attention. Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East has announced a five-city speaking tour with American scholar Norman Finkelstein from October 26th to 30th. Finkelstein's academic research has concentrated on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Tour stops will include Montreal on October 26th, Ottawa on the 27th, Toronto on the 28th, Edmonton on the 29th, and Vancouver on the 30th. In all cities, Dr. Finkelstein will deliver a lecture entitled Israel and Palestine, Past, Present, and Future. Visit cjpme.org for more information. On Friday, October 22nd, march in Toronto's Take Back the Night and remember 30 years of struggle. Over 30 years of women and trans people of color fighting for gender equity and rights in the city. Over 30 years of migrant women fighting for the right to live, work, and move with justice and dignity. Over 30 years of our Indigenous sisters fighting for sovereignty and the right to self-determination. But most of all, march because for more than 30 years we have fought resisted, and organized ourselves to fight and to win. Meet at Yong Dundas Square at 4 o'clock p.m. A panel discussion on Islamophobia and the presumption of innocence will take place October 21st at the PSAC building, 23 Gilmore Street in Ottawa. Presenters include Matthew Behrens of the Campaign to Stop Secret Trials, Monia Mazig, a human rights campaigner, Rania Tafali, of the Justice for Hassan Diab campaign and Yahya Abdul Rahman, a Muslim community activist. The panel begins at 7 o'clock p.m. and is presented by No War Pay. 
Since 2005's historic Palestinian call for a comprehensive international movement for boycott, divestment, and sanctions, or BDS, against Israeli apartheid, there have been many important victories for this movement in both Quebec and Canada. The BDS Conference 2010 aims to regain the momentum of the international BDS campaign in Quebec and bring together organizations that stand in solidarity with the plight of Palestinians. The conference will take place October 22nd to 24th at the Université du Québec à Montréal. For more information, go to bdsque.koumbit.org. For the past six weeks, No One is Illegal Vancouver have gathered in front of the Burnaby Youth Custody Prison where approximately 90 Tamil refugee mothers and children are being incarcerated. Join them at the Burnaby Detention Facility on October 23rd at 1.30 to continue to express love, support, and solidarity with those still being held inside and to call for the immediate release of detained Tamil asylum seekers. For more information, email noii-van at resist. On October 22nd, Nick Dyer-Withford, Associate Professor and the Associate Dean of the Faculty of Information and Media Studies at the University of Western Ontario, will deliver a lecture entitled, Organizing in Crisis, Anti-Capitalist Dilemmas and Priorities. The lecture examines the anti-globalization movement of the late 90s and early years of the 21st century and draws parallels to the current economic crisis. Dyer Withford will also ask, what are today's anti-capitalist movements and how are they configured? And how do these movements promote or impede an anti-capitalist future? The lecture will be held at the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education in Toronto, room 5250, and will begin at 7 o'clock p.m. Art and Anarchy and CIPO Vancouver invite you to join the Beehive Collective for a visual workshop on the true cost of coal. The workshop will take place on October 24th at 7 o'clock p.m. at Spartacus Books in Vancouver. Using a gigantic, portable mural teeming with intricate images of plants and animals, the bees will walk participants through the connections between mountaintop removal, coal mining, coal-fired electricity, and climate change. This workshop raises questions about resistance, regeneration, and remediation while celebrating stories of struggle from impacted communities. The true cost of coal will challenge all of us who casually flip on a light switch to examine our own connections to this newest, most destructive form of coal mining and to think about what we can do to stop it from within our own communities. The second annual Canadian Dimension Red Carpet Gala Awards Dinner, honoring our activist and artist communities, will take place Saturday, November 13th at the Fort Garry Hotel. Cocktails are at 6 o'clock and dinner is at 6.30. The keynote address will be given by Paul Moist, National President of the Canadian Union of Public Employees. Tickets are $60. For more information or to purchase tickets, call 204-957-1519 or email jpatterson at canadiandimension.com. And that was Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of October 21st, 2010.
On Monday, October 18th, Edmonton held their municipal elections. And to, to talk about uh, the results of that election and the impact it will have for people living there, we have with us on the line Monique Nutter. She is uh, active with a group called the Greater Edmonton Alliance. So welcome to Alert, Monique. Thank you, Mike. So uh, why don't you, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about the, uh, this new council that's just been elected. Um, well, the the incumbent mayor, Stephen Mandel, was re-elected for his third term. And um, while certainly there are... Mandel is a, is a mixed bag, he certainly um, was the most uh, promising candidate in terms of... Uh, mayoral candidate in terms of a long-range view... Um, looking at issues of sustainability, community resilience, and economic diversification for our city. And uh, who is his main rival in this race? And uh, what are some of the, uh, the 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 concerns and the background that uh, came with uh, his uh, candidacy? Yeah, his his main rival was David Dorward, who um, was a candidate that came late into the race, backed by Envision Edmonton, which was a group of um, business interests both inside and outside of Edmonton whose main goal is to keep open the city center airport in Edmonton. Edmonton has two airports. One is the municipal airport or the city center airport, and the other is the Edmonton International Airport, which is outside of town. And so David Dorward's main issue was to try and keep that airport open. Um, He also wanted to look at really cutting back on any city services outside of what he thought cities should be doing, uh, things like maintaining roads, uh, clearing snow, that sort of thing. He, he talked about getting back to basi- basics so taxpayers wouldn't be, in his eyes, frittering their money away no. any longer on sort of big-ticket, uh, big-vision items. And he also wanted to... An example of a big-ticket, big-vision item that that David Dorward thought we should go back to the drawing board on is the LRT expansion that is uh, currently planned in Edmonton. Now, that's light rapid transit. Um, So could you uh, maybe comment then on uh, what the the people who were uh, maybe the main backers behind Dorward... You know, I mean, like the the people, the, the interests that were maybe following behind him? Yeah, I mean, I I haven't looked too closely into who all of them were. Cal Nichols was um, mm-hmm. one of the big backers. Um, <clears throat> many of the backers are people who held, um, who own businesses that serve the city center airport. And then some backers were said to be people from outside of Edmonton and, uh, trying to determine the fate of our city for their own interests. But I'm not exactly clear on who those are. Mm-hmm. So would you say that this was a, a situation of maybe going with the, the lesser of two evils, if that's not putting it to... Uh, In terms of... Uh, the mayor's... Like, I'm, the mayor's race? Yeah. Well, you know, well, well, Mandel and I certainly have different views on a number of issues. I think one, one good thing to say about Mandel is he, he is able to listen um, 
to hear other people's points of views and and interested in working towards some sort of collective vision rather than just pushing ahead on a on a single track according to his own interests. Um, so I'm actually fairly pleased that we have a mayor who who is capable of entering into that kind of of dialogue and has demonstrated that. Okay. Are there any particular issues uh, that uh, perhaps you've been championing that uh, you felt uh, were not getting properly addressed uh, throughout the campaign? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, the the airport debate is really what sort of took over the whole campaign, although as as the election results showed, it wasn't the biggest issue for Edmontonians unless uh, unless the biggest issue was for closing it because Mandel ended up getting about 55% of the vote and David Dorward only got about 28% of the vote. So so um, some of the other issues, but issues that are connected to the airport because one of the promises of closing the airport is that we can develop... Um, a much denser city and and do development in a, in a new way, more dense development with community in mind. And that's the vision of, I think, um, most of city council currently. Um, but that the issue of actually redeveloping the airport didn't get as much play as whether to open or, or close it. Um, that issue of doing more dense development in the interior of Edmonton is very connected to one of the big issues that Greater Edmonton Alliance has been working on over the past two and a half years, which is trying to preserve some of the best farmland in Alberta that happens to fall within the uh, city limits of Edmonton. And so this this issue didn't get much play in in the election uh, campaign, but, but certainly um, Mandel in the campaign promised to make agriculture one of the four pillars of uh, Edmonton's economic plan. And uh, he's looking much towards uh, diversification and said we have to get off being exclusively dependent on oil. And so looking forward at agriculture as a business gives some hope to some of the uh, farmers in northeast Edmonton in particular where there's uh, some uh, potato op- growing operations, market gardens, tree nurseries, a raspberry farm, a number of different kinds of producers that produce for the local economy and some produce for export as well. Um, but so that issue of of saving that farmland or what to do with that farmland didn't get a lot of play in the election, but it does look promising going forward, at least in terms of the mayor and and many of the um, councillors who got Re-elected, like Karen Libavici, Kim Cruchel, Ben Henderson, um, Don Iveson, uh, Linda Sloan, were all big supporters of of trying to make sure that we don't just keep looking at um, green fields as blank spaces, but look at their uh, productive potential as 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 farmland, not just as blank areas to build housing over. Okay. Well, that uh, sounds like a, a very promising development, and I guess we'll just have to see how things uh, unfold in the, the in the coming years leading up to the next election. Yeah, it'll be an interesting time. Hopefully, Edmonton will achieve some of the the promise of of what people have talked about in this election campaign. 
Manik Nutter, thank you very much for joining us on Alert. Thank you very much, Michael. And now we turn to the city of Toronto, where an interesting election race is shaping up. On the line with us, we have Professor Stefan Kipfer. He's the associate professor in the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University. So hello, uh, Stefan Kipfer. Good evening. Thanks for having me. Now, um, could you maybe just tell us uh, about some of the, uh, the issues that seem to be haunting the current election as it's proceeding? Well, the, uh, speaking of the mayor's camp, mayoral campaign here in Toronto, in the city of Toronto, that campaign has been shaped very strongly by the hard-right campaign led by uh, Rob Ford, who is a current city councillor representing a ward in uh, northern Etobicoke in one of the post-war suburbs. And uh, somewhat unexpectedly, he managed to... Uh, do very well in the polls fairly early on, and then was leading the polls in the summer, and is now again in a race with um, George Smithman, who is a liberal, former cabinet minister in Ontario. Could you maybe explain a little bit about Rob Ford? Who is he? What I mean, when you say he represents hard right, I mean, are there specific policies that he is championing? Well, his uh, father was a... Uh, a uh, member of the Harris government in Ontario in the 90s. And uh, so Rob Ford is part of sort of a hard-right uh, wing of the Conservative Party in, in Ontario and is personal friends with um, uh, Canadian Finance Minister Jim Flaherty. Uh, on city council, uh, he's been um, um, a bit of a curio- curiosity. He really exemplified... The degree to which the hard right has been marginal was marginal on city council in Toronto up till now. Uh, not only was he uh, part of a small minority, but uh, he never really managed to even work with some of his potential allies on, on the hard right. And so that's one of the reasons why a lot of people in Toronto were surprised that uh, he would do so well in uh, in the polls. Now, to what extent is the popularity of Rob Ford? Uh is it related to a, a disappointment with the previous mayor? Uh, it's a good question, right? And it's, of course, the popularity is poll-driven. So as, as many of our elections are, it's always very difficult to judge what, what the polls actually mean. And there's a certain dynamic around polling that uh, feeds on itself. And I think that's certainly been the case here, too. I mean, the polls have fed media interests, and the media interests have fed you know, subsequent polls. Uh, so keeping that in mind, that there's a certain artificial quality to to, to this way of gauging popularity, uh, it seems certainly that um, the Ford can't manage to sort of tap into a number of contradictions in the current um, uh, city council regime, which has been led by Mayor Miller over the last two terms. Is there anything about Mr. Ford uh, beyond his uh, sort of uh, favoring the the hard right Flaherty style fiscal uh, policies that uh, might be of concern to uh, Torontonians? Yeah, yeah, it's important uh, that to underline that that uh, his fiscal conservatism is only one is one of the of his sort of um, 
uh, planks. I mean, it's perhaps the most consistent one, his sort of mantra of uh, <coughs> slashing, uh, spending, and, and reining in um, uh, what he calls the gravy train at City Hall, which is all a bit imaginary. Um, it's also important to, to say that his various outbursts uh, against, for example, cyclists or his uh, opinion that Toronto should no longer accept refugees because we already have enough immigrants in the city. All of these outbursts, even though they were commented on critically by some of the media, uh, actually did not hurt his popularity. Um, and so he, like a classical populist, uh, very much sort of uh, fosters um, or makes it more acceptable to, uh, you know, be explicitly racist or explicitly homophobic or explicitly uh, pro-car in the city. Now, what do you estimate are the chances that Rob Ford might actually end up winning this election? And uh, whether he does or not, uh, what, what does, direction do you see uh, the city of Toronto moving in? Um, well, uh, certainly the campaign has already signaled a, a, a shift to the right in terms of the mayor's campaign. Um, there are some indications that this may also be the case in some of the uh, wards, because a number of uh, sort of left liberal centrist politicians have uh, retired, and in some cases that, that, that may make it possible for uh, more right-leaning councillors to be elected. Um, at the moment, um, uh, Rob Ford is tied in the polls again with George Smitherman. Um, and uh, as we speak, uh, the proportion of people polled who are uncertain about their choices is decreasing. Um, so it certainly looks like it's going to be a... Um, uh, a neck-to-neck uh, race between Smitherman and um, um, Ford. Uh, one of the effects of, of the campaign dynamic has been to marginalize um, uh, um, Pancholone, who used to be a, um, who is a uh, key ally of uh, Mayor Miller. An heir apparent kind of I'm sorry? You mean a kind of like an heir apparent or just sort of... That's right, you know. that's right. So, I mean, one of the effects of the rightward shift in the campaign, which is not the, not just the result of Ford, because a lot of other candidates were moving into the campaign on a, har- on, on a, on a, on a uh, neoliberal conservative uh, platform, including Smedeman, for that matter. One of the effects of, of, of this campaign has been to, to kind of uh, make it appear as if the Miller years were you know, this sort of left-leaning uh, um, era in Toronto politics, which, of course, is, is, uh, was not, is not true. Uh, but certainly one of the effects of this uh, campaign has been to marginalize Pantalone, who indeed does stand for, for the Miller years. And he's the only candidate who kind of uh, defends the record of Mayor Miller. Well, okay. I would think we'll just have to leave it there and uh, see how things uh, turn out. We'll watch this uh, election race very carefully. So thank you very much, Stefan Kipfer, for joining us on Alert. Thank you very much for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Stephen Staples is a defense policy analyst, CCPA research associate, and president of the Rideau Institute, 
Uh, we're talking with him here today about the recent announcement uh, by the Harbour government to purchase uh, 65 F-35 stealth fighters. Um, so let's get right to it. Does Canada need these airplanes? Not at all. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that about sums it up. Uh, no, we've, uh, we did a study for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives called Pilot Error, Why the F-35 Stealth Fighter is Wrong for Canada. And what we did is we looked at the roles that uh, Canada uses for its, uh, its fighter fleet right now. We have uh, CF-18s that were bought in the 1980s and have been recently upgraded, and the F-35s are planned to replace the F-18s. And we looked at the roles that the CF-18s play right now, which are two roles. One is providing uh, the ability to intercept aircraft uh, around North America, so providing security for Canada and North America. And secondly, uh, to use on what's called expeditionary missions, that is missions internationally, primarily where they're intended in a, uh, attacking uh, surface attacks or you know, dropping bombs, essentially. Uh, and as a result of, of looking at this and the F-35, uh, we found that the F-35 is actually not a good fit at all for Canada. It's, uh, it's primarily designed by the United States as a first strike weapon system that would be used in a shock and awe type attack. That's why it has stealth characteristics. It's also very expensive, and really we weren't convinced that there was any need to rush out to replace the F-18s at this point, that there was lots of time to take uh, careful consideration of what our, our, our needs are. And lastly, we, we really decided that, uh, concluded that in 30 years, we've only deployed the CF-18s twice, and it's a tremendously expensive capability to be able to drop bombs because of smart bombs and the kind of technologies used today. And our recommendation was that we dispense with this and we just focus our aircraft on protecting uh, and uh, intercepting roles in North America and uh, just focusing on that role. So, so if this is the case, um, and they're really, it's unnecessary to make such a big, expensive purchase, uh, why do you think the government is so, so strongly committed to doing this? Well, generally what happens in, in these kinds of cases is there's a number of interests that come together um, around a particular uh, policy or piece of equipment. And I think in this case, what you have is an Air Force that obviously wants the latest, greatest, best piece of equipment that it can possibly get. And U.S. built is the gold standard. The U.S. is building two or three, three new types of aircraft right now, two primarily. Uh, one is the F-22 Raptor, but they're withholding that. They're not actually selling that to other countries. The second is the F-35. So, of course, the Air Force wants that as well. They want to be able to maintain uh, pilots uh, because the day is coming very quickly when the next aircraft won't have pilots at all, and they want to be able to maintain that uh, capability because, of course, pilots want to remain pilots. Uh, the second thing is that, obviously, Lockheed Martin is a major U.S. manufacturer, and uh, they have very close connections with this government, a very effective lobby, and uh, they've had the inside track on this for quite some time. In fact, even going back to the early uh, 2000s, 2002, when the Liberals first started investing money in the research and development phase of this plane. Not committed to buy it at that point, but certainly moving uh, in, the, in that direction. So I think uh, between the defense contractors, 
the Department of Defense, and of course a, a conservative government that wants to uh, continue to appease its own base that likes big military spending projects. Afghanistan is winding down, so this is uh, red meat for the conservative party base. And all of these factors uh, coming together has resulted in this very expensive procurement, planned procurement, $16 billion, the, the single largest defense expenditure, perhaps government expenditure in history. So, so, so what about the claim by the government uh, that this will bring significant economic benefits to Canada? Well, first of all, I mean, any kind of major government expenditure is going to bring economic benefits to the country. Uh, you know, they could buy trains and uh, not buy planes at all and buy trains and build the trains in Canada, and it would have far more, far greater economic impact than these planes were because actually what they're doing is they're buying aircraft from the United States. So these aircraft aren't going to be built in Canada. They're going to be built in, uh, in Fort Worth, Texas, where the production plant is, uh, is located. And the government has not even done what they typically do, which is require that every dollar they spend on a foreign-built piece of equipment like this, the company that's building it has to invest an equal amount of dollars in Canada, not necessarily on building the plane, but maybe on other projects, for instance, or doing some level of investment, and all that is calculated up. Uh, that's how it's typically done, but the government is, isn't even doing that with this program. So it's hard to believe the government when they say they're doing this to create jobs because they've not taken steps to ensure that uh, an equal amount of money is actually invested back into Canada. So it does ring hollow. Okay, so I think we've got time for about one more question. So I just want to follow up on something that you mentioned where you had said that what we should do instead is refocus the current aircraft that we do have. Um, so could you elaborate on that a little bit, and what are some of the other alternatives um, to this you know, big purchase that they want to make? Well, sure. I mean, I think in, 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 if you were to go out and, 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 and say, uh, buy a new car, uh, you would first say, well, uh, you know, you wouldn't say, what's the best car out there? Uh, maybe do I need a Maserati, uh, that, even though it costs $150,000? You'd say, no, you know, maybe I just need something to uh, go back and forth to work. I want something with good gas mileage. You know, I want something with four doors so I can get my big dog in the back seat, that kind of thing. So you basically look at what the role is first, and then you go out and look around at what's available, and then you make your decision based on that. In this case, um, uh, the government hasn't done that. It's just moved out and decided to buy this plane without even putting it to any competition. So essentially they've walked into a Maserati dealership and said, hey, I've decided to buy a Maserati. Now tell me how much I'm going to have to pay. The best way to do it is first set out your requirements. And as we put in our paper, we think that we should just be focusing on the North American context and support of NORAD and that we should dispense with the ability to drop bombs elsewhere. But uh, the government uh, hasn't even really made a clear case about what needs it has and then would go out and presumably have a competition and investigate different platforms and say this might be the plane that we want. I mean, different people may have different feelings about whether Canada should replace its current fleet of CF-18s. The good news is they're going to last another decade, so we have lots of time. There is no rush to go out and, and replace these, uh, these aircraft. But assuming that you do want to replace the aircraft, you would look at what kind of role you'd want to have and then look at the available models out there. The F-35 doesn't even really come close. It's a stealth fighter. It's made for a shock-and-awe mission when what really, really need, we need 
is something to support NORAD. And NORAD is primarily focused not really on the Arctic, somewhat, but mostly on preventing another 9-11. So you don't need much uh, for that kind of uh, capability. And um, we could be looking at other European manufacturers. And even if we look down the road, the next generation of aircraft probably won't even have pilots. Certainly the trend is to move to pilotless aircraft, and uh, that may be something that the government would want, to, uh, would want to look at. The good news is, is we've got time, and it's our recommendation that the government takes its time, defines what it wants, and looks around out there and makes the right decision in five or six years. Well, thanks so much for speaking with us tonight, Stephen. Um, and we'll keep, uh, keep an eye on this uh, story and see what happens. Sure, you can get a copy of the report by visiting our website, which is ceasefire.ca. Okay, perfect. Thanks. Thanks so much. We've been speaking with Stephen Staples of the Rideau Institute. And welcome to Alert. Um, I'm speaking with Nick Turnett. And uh, this is uh, as the uh, election 2010, when uh, the Winnipeg is going to be choosing its next mayor and council. And uh, Nick Turnett, I wonder if you could, uh, if I could just appeal to you as somebody who's uh, something of uh, an expert on uh, municipal politics, as somebody who's certainly contested the office of uh, mayor uh, enough times already. Uh, what for you, uh, what, what is it that impresses you most about the, the current election as it's been unraveling? To be absolutely honest, as far as uh, overall impressions, I'm not impressed at all by the campaign. Uh, actually, there was an interesting column in the uh, Saturday Winnipeg Free Press in the entertainment section by Brad Oswald talking about how people are getting turned off and whenever they're watching the civic elections, um, elections, uh, you know, the campaign, the mayoralty campaigns, which are being broadcast quite a bit, that uh, all you hear is cliches and whatever else from all the candidates, except uh, two fringe candidates who are completely ignored but who actually are trying to be honest and whatever else. I thought that was a very interesting column. In that sense, uh, I'm, I'm disappointed. I mean, and I don't think it's anybody's fault. It's just the way the structure of the media is. I think media actually is going to turn people, is turning people off uh, politics and actually getting people not to vote. Uh, and that was one of the best columns I've ever written. I, I get bored by some of the stuff that's written and everything else. And I don't think the politicians are allowed to give them their honest opinions and indeed details, opinions of what they really believe in. They, all they can do is speak in little phrases, you know, uh, 30 seconds uh, phrases uh, of just saying, now obviously there are fundamental differences between Sam Case and Judy. That's Did you not define those differences? Well, the differences are, um, I would call it uh, that uh, Judy believes in community and neighborhoods and people uh, and their concerns uh, in a broad sense of the word while cases obviously city is to be run like a business and uh, we're pro-business and that's uh, the only interest that we have so I mean in that sense that comes across but you know uh, Judy hasn't been able to really explain 
fundamental uh, policy differences in, in an extensive manner. You know, it just hasn't. Okay, know, just, then. Well, that's what, the problem. What policies then uh, do you believe should be discussed and, and what is not being discussed as far as this Well, minimally, concerned? for example, I had to moderate a uh, social planning council, uh, Winnipeg Harvest, and uh, make poverty history uh, form uh, on poverty, uh, homelessness, uh, and social justice and whatever else. And take a guess, only about 30 people showed up. And of course, Sam Cates, the mayor, didn't bother showing up. He wasn't, and he was invited twice at least. Uh, and Aboriginal issues, primarily, you know, the whole issue of urban reserves and whatever else, which we discussed. Uh, and uh, that was one form. 30 people covered it, no media coverage whatsoever. Uh, Poverty just is not an issue, you know, for, for the things. Uh, if you listen to CGOB uh, or, you know, even the Winnipeg Sun, it's taxation, taxation, taxation. Well, the majority of people are poor in Winnipeg. Really, taxation is not an issue that affects them all that much, you know. And for those who are homeowners, to suggest that low-income homeowners are going to lose their homes, it's just uh, the biggest lie that you could ever think of, you know, in terms of the amount of money uh, that they're going to have to spend because it's based on how much uh, property taxes they pay in the first mm-hmm. place. Could you maybe tell us, uh, to our listeners across the country, about the city of Winnipeg itself and, and what it is about the city, anything unique characteristics that uh, may uh, reinforce or impede uh, democratic accountability in the city? Well, uh, uh, it's kind of a broad question. It's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a really broad question. I, my whole argument was that the structure of city hall has become uh, kind of a, a, what I call democratic dictatorship. I know it's a contradiction of terms, but in, because the mayor appoints people to exact the policy committee, so therefore he, he or she has seven votes automatically out of nine votes and can get most anything done. Uh, Actually, uh, Judy has not even addressed that question of democracy and whatever else. Democracy hasn't even been looked at at all. Uh, the other thing that really disturbs me about this one is the amount of minimal coverage that French candidates have gotten. Uh, both at, civi- at the city council level, there are French candidates running in some of the wards. Absolutely. They may be mentioned one line, and that's about it. Not even their policies are mentioned. And the two mayoralty candidates, whether we like them or not, and whether we would vote for them, it's not the issue, but they are legitimate candidates. Uh, they ought to be given some uh, hearing about what their positions are. Uh, they have been completely ignored. Never. When I ran for five times, I got a fair amount of publicity and fair amount of coverage, uh, maybe not as much as the major candidates, but satisfactory to me that saying that I got my, uh, my views across to the public in a fairly bar way, they're not even getting their views across whatsoever. I mean, it, uh, it's, uh, uh, I think it's dangerous. I mean, if, if views are being limited to little 30-second scripts, you know, and you're not even allowed uh, uh, from a mainstream candidate to express yourself really in terms of what you really believe in, and then you have fringe candidates who are completely ignored, how is the public going to really legitimately decide to choose if they are really concerned about uh, the voting? You know, I'm worried about the voting turnout again. You know, uh, as I said before, we had a 38% voter turnout last time. Uh, only about a third of the vo- uh, people vote. Uh, and uh, if we don't increase that, I mean, how can we legitimately say 
say we have a democracy when 38% elect a city council and a mayor, mm -hmm. when uh, the majority of the people don't even bother voting? Does that simply mean uh, that those people are going to be ignored? I mean, that's, that's a big question. Okay. Well, on that note, uh, I want to thank you, Nick, for uh, uh, joining us on Alert. You're most welcome. And we'll see how things turn out on October 27th. Thanks. <laughs> Nick Turnett joining me here in Winnipeg. Hello, this is Music is a Weapon. I'm Mitch Podolik. And on this week's show, the songs of Ewan McCall. Ewan McCall, some of you may know, is Pete Seeger's brother-in-law. But Ewan McCall is also known as the Pete Seeger of Great Britain. A long, a radical, longer, great songwriter, he produced a body of work that's almost second to none. So we're going to have a whole bunch of people singing his songs today, and we'll finish up with him singing one of his own. To start, here's Tommy Makem with a very relevant song. It's about, about forcing gypsies to move, and considering what's happening with that fascist Sarkozy in France, this song's relevance is still very real. Here is Tommy Makem with Move Along. Born in the middle of the afternoon On a horse-drawn wagon on the old A5 The big twelve-wheeler shook me bed You can't stop here, the policeman said You'd better get born in some place else Move along, get along, move along, get along Go, move, shift Born in the tatty hoken time In a canvas tent near a tatty field The farmer says your work's all done It's time that you are moving on You'd better get born in some place else Move along, get along, move along, get along Go, move, shift Born on a common near a building site Where the ground is rotted with the trailer's wheels The local people said to me You lower the price of property You'd better get born in some place else Move along, get along, move along, get along Go, move, shift Born at the back of a blackthorn hedge When the white hoar frost lay all around No eastern kings came bearing gifts Instead the order came to shift You'd better get born in some place else Move along, get along, move along, get along Go, move, shift Her sky was hung with stars And one shone brighter than the rest The wise men came so stern and strict 
and brought the order to evict. Yet better get born in some place else. Move along, get along, move along, get along, go, move, shift. Wagon, tent, or train are born. Last month, last year, or in far-off days, born here or a thousand miles away, there's always men nearby who say you'd better get born in some place else. Move along, get along, move along, get along, go, move, shift. That was Tommy Makem with Move Along. Coming up next is a song written by McCall about Comrade Jesus. Almost every good radical singer of the 20th century wrote one song about Jesus. I don't know what is so fascinating about the guy, but here is a very, very well-constructed communist point of view about Jesus. Here's Phil Oakes singing Ewan McCall's The Ballad of the Carpenter. Jesus was a working man and a hero you will hear born in the town of Bethlehem at the turning of the year at the turning of the year when Jesus was a little lad streets rang with his name for he argued with the older men them all to shame he put them all to shame he became a wandering journeyman and he traveled far and wide and he noticed how wealth and poverty live always side by side live always side by side so he said, come all you working men, farmers and weavers too. If you would only stand as one, this world belongs to you. This world belongs to you. When the rich men heard what the carpenter had done, to the Roman troops they ran. Saying, put this rebel Jesus down He's a menace to God and man He's a menace to God and man The commander of the occupying troops Just laughed and then he said There's a cross to spare on Calvary's hill By the weekend he'll be dead By the weekend he'll be dead now Jesus walked among the poor for the poor were his own kind and they'd never let them get near enough to take him from behind to take him from behind so 
Oh, they hired one of the traders' trade, and an informer was he. And he sold his brother to the butcher's men for a fistful of silver money. For a fistful of silver money. And Jesus sat in the prison cell, and they beat him and offered him bribes to desert the cause of his fellow men and work for the rich men's tribe. To work for the rich men's tribe, and the sweat stood out on Jesus' brow, and the blood was in his eye. When they nailed his body to the Roman cross, and they laughed as they watched him die, they laughed as they watched him die. Two thousand years have passed and gone, many a hero too, but the dream of this poor carpenter. Remains in the hands of you. Remains in the hands of you. I found my love by the gasworks. Dreamed a dream by the old canal. Kissed my girl by the factory wall. Dirty old town, dirty old town. Clouds are drifting across the moon. Cats are prowling on their beat. Springs a girl in the street at night. Dirty old town. Dirty old town. I heard a siren from the dark. Saw a train set the night on fire. Smelled the spring on the smoky wind. Dirty old town, dirty old town. I'm going to make a good sharp axe, shining steel, tempered in the fire. We'll chop you down. Like an old dead tree, dirty old town, dirty old town.
Ewan McCall's classic Dirty Old Town, sung by the Ian Campbell folk group, and before that, Phil Oaks with Ballad of the Carpenter. Here's the old guy himself. Here's Ewan McCall singing one of the most beautiful songs that I know. He wrote it for a BBC special about fishing. It's called The Shoals of Hearing. With our nets and gear we're faring On the wild and wasteful ocean It's there on the deep that we harvest and reap our bread As we hunt the bonny shows of heaven Oh, it was a fine and a pleasant day Out of Yarmouth Harbor I was faring As a cabin boy on a sailing locker For to go and hunt the shoals of Heron Oh, the work was hard and the hours were long And the treatment sure it took some bearing There was little kindness and the kicks were many As we hunted for the shoals of Heron Fish the sword and the broken bank I was cook and I had a quarter sharing And I used to sleep standing on my feet And I'd dream about the shoals of Heron Well, we left the home grounds in the month of June and to canny shields we soon was barren With a hundred crown of the silver darlings That we'd taken from the shoals of Heron Now you're up on deck, you're a fisherman you can swear and show a manly bearing Take your turn on watch with the other fellas While you're following the shoals of Heron In the stormy seas and the living gales Just to earn your daily bread you're daring From the Dover Straits to the Faroe Islands While you're following the shoals of Heron Well, I earned me keep and I paid me way And I earned the gear that I was wearing Sailed a million miles, caught ten million fishes We was following
That was you and McCall with the Shoals of Herring. And that's it for this week, folks. See you next week. Keep it going. Keep it on. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear the show again, or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Cy Gonick. Technical producer is Tommy Allen, assisted by Selena Serbinuk. Alert headlines by Chris Webb. Seven Days Around the Left by Ben Wood. Music is The Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.